Welcome to this episode of The Rise After the Fall. Our guest today is Pastor Lonnie Keene. Him and his wife, Pastor Tracy, planted Strong Point Church in Columbus, Ohio 25 years ago, and it is changing their city even still today. And so we are so grateful. Pastor Lonnie, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you, Pastor Sean, for having me. I appreciate the invitation and to sit with you here and to be at Life Church this weekend has been just amazing. And uh, so I'm just glad to be here. Yeah, we had a very interesting introduction. Actually, we didn't meet each other until about 15 minutes before the service. <laughs> we don't, outside of this series that we've been in here at Life Church, we haven't typically had a lot of guest speakers. And and my wife called me and and she she said, hey, I've got a guy who who you need to come and have speak. She interestingly was at Champion Center in Tacoma, Washington. She had been putting our staff through uh, Pastor Kevin Gerald's book, Naked and Unafraid. And, and because she was in Tacoma, she thought, you know, I want to go hear Pastor Kevin speak. And anytime you go to a new church, anticipating to hear a particular person, especially when they're an author, and then a guest speaker gets up there, sometimes you get Disappointed. The first three times I went to Lakewood in Houston to hear Pastor Joel Osteen, they had a guest speaker. And I was so I was so discouraged by the fact that I went all that way. And so I think initially she was like, oh man, I don't even get yeah. to hear Pastor Kevin. And then the minute that you started to speak, she began to message me. And she was like, babe, wow. you need to have, she said, this guy is killing it. And wow. you need to have this guy in and you need to have this guy particularly in this series. And I think what's interesting is that this series up until this point, and even this podcast to a certain extent, has been pastors who have had a failure in ministry. What I love about your story is that you haven't had a failure in ministry. You've been faithful. You and Pastor Tracy haven't had affairs. You haven't stolen money. You did, and you, so when you got up to share your story yesterday to our people, what I love is you talked about your fall that happened before your faith mm -hmm. and actually how your fall impacted your faith. Mm -hmm. And so would you tell them a little bit about, just tell them who you are, where you came from and. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, basically born in Virginia, lived my whole life in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, so I, I love our city, you know, and, uh, grew up in our city, Grew up uh, probably what some would call below uh, the poverty line economically uh, in what we call the hood, right? <laughs> and so uh, I have always had uh, a great work ethic. You know, uh, I learned that uh, from actually uh, some other men in my family because my father wasn't really in my life growing up. But I worked and always had a pretty decent job. And so, uh, you know, back in, I guess it would have been the mid to the late 80s is when, you know, the cocaine crack epidemic really hit America hard mm. and just swooped me up in it. It's just a way to make fast money. And I got involved with it. And that kind of is what led to uh, the beginning, I would say, to, of my fall. Yeah. So yeah. yesterday you said, I love that you said that you're out there looking for fast money. I think there's people that are looking for that in lots of different areas, whether that's cheating on their taxes or robbing from their job or whatever yep. that may be. But where you committed not just a crime and not just a felony, 
you got caught up and you committed a federal offense because of the new drug laws at that time. And so you got arrested and, and you were incarcerated. How long were you incarcerated? Three years. Yeah, I was incarcerated for three years. Totally different, a whole new world. You know, being in a federal place versus being in a county jail or even state prison where everybody, you know, kind of locally there, everybody speaks your language. So, <laughs> right. you know, going uh, to a federal institution was just totally different for me. It just, it wasn't what I expected. Didn't really know what to expect, but I certainly didn't expect a bunch of different, you know, ethnicities and people, races there who are talking different languages. You know, I'm in a new place and I can't even understand what half of the people are saying. I didn't know if they're talking about me, what was going on. So it was very eye-opening and very startling and uh, just a lot to wrap my mind around at 25 years old. And uh, yeah, spent my next three years there. And uh, new baby when that yeah. When the when the sentencing came down, you you had a new baby. You weren't married yet. You had a new baby and you tell this great story about at your sentencing, your family was there, Pastor Tracy who who wasn't your wife at the time. Yeah. She was there and and the sentencing was about to go down and tell them tell them what that was like. <laughs> well, yeah. So, you know, anytime you're being sentenced, the judge will ask you if you had any words to say or you know, you have to stand before sentencing. And so I did. And uh, right uh, before he was about to pass sentence, I looked back at my family and Tracy was standing behind me, probably closer to me than anyone. And as I looked back at her, she kind of whispered under her <laughs> voice and put five fingers up. She said, I'll wait five years. <laughs> and so uh, that was... Uh, it was, it, I mean, it was very consoling, you know, mm. to know that I had somebody in my corner like that who would wait five years. And so I turned back around to the judge. He gives me 40 months. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm thinking, I'm not counting in months. I'm thinking years. So what is 40 months? And so I start kind of calculating my head. Oh, it's a little over three years. And so I turned back to her and said, I expect you to wait, right? And so she did, wow. you know, and, uh, Honestly, I didn't tell this part of my story yesterday, but I was sent to Terre Haute, Indiana. Okay. So, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe five-hour drive from Columbus, somewhere in that ballpark. And she and my son came to visit me every other week for a year. Wow. Nonstop. Every other week, she would come visit me. After that first year, they built a new facility in Yankton, South Dakota. Oh, my gosh. I've been there. God forbid. Whoever knew there'd be a Yankton, South Dakota. <laughs> so they took about 50 of those prisoners from Terre Haute to, fill up, to start to fill up this new prison, and I was one of them. Wow. So Yankton, South Dakota, I spent my next two years there, and so she came once a year, flew out with my son once. So I saw him twice in two years. Wow. And uh, that was pretty much, so still, uh, you know, um, support, supporting and being there. And uh, when I came home, I really had something to fall into. To, and I think that's, you know, a big part of recidivism. People don't have any support systems and things. And she was a great support system for me. And I knew, I, you know, I had a good woman, right? And so we married probably. I came home in 92 early that year. We married that same year on Christmas Day. Come on. So, so it'll be uh, 30 years this Christmas. Come on. What yeah. a gift, too. Yeah. <laughs> a, what a woman. Yeah. <laughs> I've spent the last few days with her. And I said to some of our guys last night, you guys are equally magnetic. 
Wow. I'm I'm so enthralled with both of you. Wow. It's been such a gift to me to have you come into my life. And I appreciate that. Somewhere in the mix from the time that you were picked up until the time that you were sentenced, did you have a salvation experience somewhere in there? Because you yeah. were, a new, yeah. Yeah, so here's an interesting thing. Uh, I, I, Tracy and I just mentioned, been together, th- been married 30 years this year, been together 40 years. Mm. So our first 10 years, I mean, we were young. She was 15, I was 18, like when we first got together. And uh, her mom was a pastor. So she grew up as a PK. I didn't grow up in church at all, but I just, you know, I don't know. I just sensed, I just sensed the Lord had his hand on my life, even when I was in the streets doing wrong, right? Kept you alive. Yeah, and and her and I were running around the streets doing crazy stuff, and we were always saying, you know, when we get saved, (laughs) when we get saved, it's like, man, we were like uh, really uh, putting, you know, risking the grace of God at that time, right? But we just kind of knew when we get saved, and so... Uh, what happened was I knew uh, my sentencing, so what I had to do, because I turned myself in. So my lawyer told me if I was to do that, they would probably be more lenient with me. So in turning myself in, I was able to uh, surrender myself to uh, the prison. Okay. So I didn't have to go through county prison. I actually was driven to the prison. Wow. So knowing that, I had to be at a prison at a certain date. It was a Monday. Sunday, the day before, in church, I gave my life to Christ. Come on. And some people's like, oh, you only did that. I say, any reason to give your life to Christ is a good reason. Exactly. I don't know too many people, you know, who gave their life to Christ and thought their life was wonderful, right? Right. It's generally mostly out of some sort of brokenness, a Mm. need, right? And so I did that, and yes, Spent my next three years of being saved in prison, and uh, it was actually revolutionary for me. Uh, I knew I didn't have jailhouse religion. Yeah, uh, there were a lot of guys who did. Yeah, uh, would go to chapel, uh, commit it, and get out. And six months, I'd see them back. You know, and so they would say, you know, man, all you got is jailhouse religion. I didn't even try to argue it. I just knew what God had done in my heart. And yeah. So, you weren't arguing it, you were just living it. Yeah, just living it. And here's the interesting thing. Some of the same guys, like I had to cut some relationships. Uh, there was one guy from my city who I, when I went in, I knew him. Okay. And he took me under his wing right when I got in, but he was just really a bad seed, raunchy kind of guy. And yep. I was hanging with him for the first 30 days or so. And uh, one night I'm laying on my bunk, 30 days in, and I really sensed the Spirit of the Lord saying, are you going to be saved or are you going to be saved? And I knew what he was saying, like, this guy that you're hanging with is just not good for you and you want him to be a Christian. So one of the hardest things I had to do, and it really served me well when I got out, was cut that relationship. Mm. And it was really the only relationship I knew in the joint. But the interesting thing about God, <laughs> I'm reminded of the scriptures and when Peter said, we've left all to follow thee. Yes. He said, listen, anybody who's left everything, I've given them mothers, more brothers, more sisters. And as soon as I cut that relationship in the joint, one of my best friends today from my city didn't even know he was in there. God hooked me up with him. He was saved. And uh, he already had a group of saved guys in there. And so I'd find another clique that, you know, I did my my time with. And, uh, man, it was just, it was awesome. I, actually, I said it yesterday. I wouldn't change that experience for yeah. anything while I would never want to happen again. Yeah. But I would never take it back because it marked me for who I am today. Even in the middle of your incarceration, God was making way for you. Yeah. He'll make a way where there seems to be no way. And I think it's easy for us to sing that. It's easy for us when life is 
quasi normal yeah. for us to sing that, say that, quote that. We've got lots of colloquialisms that we just yeah. spout off the top of our head that aren't time tested. Yeah. But that for That's you good. is time tested. How yeah. did that three years, in your opinion, looking back, how did that impact your faith going forward once you were released? You know, I just think for me, um, to make a long story long, <laughs> <laughs> um, I talked about Humpty Dumpty, right, yesterday. And, um, I, you know, all the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together. And I think before my experience of prison, one of the things I realized there, I was, I was broken way before then, right? I was so broken, so shattered. And... Uh, all of the things that I did leading into that really were some attempts for healing and wholeness and yeah. reaching for fulfillment in the wrong places. And so I learned, I think, that the king's horses and the king's men wasn't the answer. And yeah. while being in prison, I just really laid hold to the truth that God was my answer. Um, uh, matter of fact, uh, think about this. I got saved that Sunday, mm -hmm. before, the Monday before I went. Tracy wasn't saved. Wow. So the whole time I'm in, you know, I'm calling her, did you get saved? See, for me, I'm locked up now. Salvation yeah. is my only trump card. Yeah. Like, like, you got to get saved. That's <laughs> the only way I can trust you is that you saved now, right? Yep. And every week she was like, no, not yet, not today, not this Sunday, right? And so I remember telling the Lord before I came home, I said, whether she's saved or not, I'm going to serve you. So my salvation isn't predicated on what she does, even though she's my greatest support. When I go home, she's probably going to be my greatest support. But God, if she doesn't serve you, it doesn't matter. I'm going to serve yeah. you. And so it just gave me a sense of, like, um, fulfillment and peace that I had never had. And I knew that uh, I, didn't, I didn't need to look anywhere, anywhere else. Mm. You know? For the last few years, we've had uh, a pretty strong ministry into Brown County Jail, which is the county jail here in Green Bay. And then we've also had the transcripts of our messages going out to other correctional facilities. And the thing I've observed about guys who have been incarcerated and have what you would call a jailhouse religious experience, the challenge, I think, is that while they're incarcerated, they've got so much time to pray to study. And some of those guys are so studious. Some of the letters that I get, we get letters every week from, yeah. from guests at yeah. the Brown County jail. And, and some of the, some of the theological questions that I get are just like, wow. But, but the challenge is when it is that kind of a jailhouse religion, like you talked about, the challenge that we've seen is when they come out, number one, they have all the challenges that they had previous to their yeah. incarceration in the same crowd that they were running with. And, yep. and, and, and the lack of access to some resources, the lack of access to employment, depending upon what their yep. offense was. But, but largely mm -hmm. I see what a lot of those guys struggle with is that they've become so accustomed to having the time mm -hmm. to really focus in on one thing. Yep. And now that they've got other things. And so it's interesting to me that, Number one, like you said, it wasn't a jailhouse experience. Number two, you were surrounded by other men of faith while you were incarcerated. And somewhere in there, the voice of the Lord must have been clear to you that said, I want you to go home. Yep. And I want your life to be so different that I want you to go into ministry. Yeah. When did that happen? So that's a great question. Here's the thing. A guy, a pastor came in. He would come in 
probably once a month, and I never forget sitting in a circle. He's mentioned to us. He said, "Listen, take advantage of this time." He mm. said, "Take grow." I think you know. Think about spiritual growth different than natural. You can you know it can be you know expedited. It can, yeah, you can do it exponentially. It can go fast, right? And so I think that's what happened to me in three years. If I was three years at home saved, I probably wouldn't have grown as fast as I did when I was in right. joint because of all of the time. He said, take advantage of this time because when you get home, you won't have it again. <laughs> so for me, uh, I, I remember uh, I, my first opportunities to teach was in the joint, and I would teach guys. And uh, great experience to some degree because guys would be looking at me like, what are you talking about? Mm. And I'm having to teach for the first time. And then after I'm done, they're coming up to me like, man, that was wonderful. Who knew? Right. You're looking at me like rock face, hard face. Like <laughs> I didn't get it, right? And so it, it taught me that really not to respond to people's expression because you just don't know what's going on in the heart of someone. Yeah. And after that, I had this feeling that I just wanted to come home, listen to this, and teach my girlfriend, who I knew was going to be my wife, Tracy, and my son. Hmm. I, I I was I would lay in my bunk and visualize just teaching them. Wow. All of this that I was learning was blowing my mind away. It was revolutionary. I just wanted to share it with them. And so when I got home, I did that. But then I just sensed a stronger calling on my life. And the church that I was in started allowing me to preach and teach. And I just sensed God was telling me it's time for you to go and start a church. And we did with four people, my, <laughs> my wife and I and another couple. Uh, 25 years this September. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And you just started it out of nothing. Did you out of start nothing. It at the house? Or? Uh, no, interesting thing. Uh, uh, at the church that I left, uh, the pastor wasn't totally in agreement with my leaving. Uh, I was a great member while I was with him. Uh, and I just told him, I said, hey, if there was any other way I could come, you know I'd come that way. But I just sensed the Lord is telling me it's time to go. And he sensed that. You know, back then, I think it's a lot changed a lot now. Pastors had a hard time of letting go of people. Yeah. And made you feel guilty for leaving. And, you know, and I said I would never do that. And uh, so, um, you know, I did that. Uh, so, you know, in doing that, I'm expecting. I've been a faithful member. Can you help me out? Can you give me some chairs, a microphone, something, right? Yeah. Got nothing. Wow. So, you know, uh, another couple really believed in our vision, started with us. Um, I think I took a hat, ball cap off my head, told them to write down what their tithe would be, throw it in the ball cap. We'll see what the budget is, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so... Um, the first church business meeting. <laughs> yeah, first church. And so I, I was working for a guy uh, who owned a property. Okay. I used to do some uh, home remodeling. So I was a professional painter. And so one night standing out in front of his $2 million home, I said, hey, I'm getting ready to start a church, Tom. You have any properties? He said, nah, I don't think I do. Right before we're about to leave, he goes in his pocket, pulls me out some keys, look like janitor keys, 50 keys. He just throws the whole thing at me and says, hey, I got a place up on the Ohio State campus. Go look at it. I said, okay, what did you charge me for it? He said, if you want it, take it for free. Wow. And so I went and looked. It was a really small, really all it was was a little apartment building, right? Yeah. We could seat 35 people in the place. He gave it to me for free for six months. Wow. And so five months, we packed it out, 40, 45 people, yeah. right? And so we left. We need to get another space. Had, didn't charge him. He didn't charge us a dime. I ended up writing him a check. I can't remember, maybe for about 1500 bucks. Yeah, which was, a, which was a ton of money back then. A ton of money, right? A ton of money. And it allowed us to save about $10,000. Mm. 
So, you know, it was it was just humble beginnings, and it was uh, just God showing me all along the way. Here's the other thing. Uh, the day that we started our church, the first Sunday, I didn't even know this. I'm driving home. Uh, Tracy, we had always driven separate to church. She's probably already at home. I'm on the way. She calls me. She said, babe, do you recognize what today was? And I said, no. She said, today is September the 7th, 1997. Mm. And our address was 77 East 7th Avenue. Come on. (laughs) So we had always just taken that as confirmation from God, man. He's going to finish what he started with us. Can you believe that? September the 7th, 1997, (laughs) 77 East 7th Avenue. That's insane. Yeah, that was our beginning. The number of the Lord. (laughs) Yeah. The number of blessing. And here we are 25 years later, and there's been a few times on this podcast where I feel like I have like prophetically spoken over the guest, maybe one other time. And I really felt like this last night and wanted to tell you this face to face. I believe you haven't even begun to see what God's about to do. Wow. I believe that God is positioning you in a place where he is going to raise you up and use you among the great leaders of America. Wow. That he's going to give you a voice among people that you never imagined that you would have a voice among that you will begin to receive opportunities that you never sought out, that you never imagined, and you can't even believe them when they happen. That wow. You'll begin to get phone calls from people who will begin to ask you to come and tell your story of wow. Wow. restoration and of your life. And it's interesting to me, the providence of God, I would call it, that that here's this girl from Green Bay who's in Tacoma, who goes to listen to an author and a man just happens to be speaking on that day. And yeah. and here you are in Green Bay. And wow. in my opinion, the beginning of a lifelong relationship, our people were so moved wow, by your message. Yeah. And it was, I want to say this, be careful how I say this. It was out of their character. Okay. How they responded, how emotionally they responded. Wow. Because I think that you connected at a level that was so organic. Wow. A level that was so human, yet so supernatural at wow. the same time. Wow. You told a story of humanity that was that was pivoted by a supernatural encounter. And and for a person who's living their normal life, you know, and this podcast has been about leaders who have fallen, what's beautiful about about your story is that it is for every man. Mm. Every man has done something wrong. Every Mm. woman has done something wrong. Mm -hmm. Everyone has something in the hidden places. There's something in a nook or a cranny somewhere Mm -hmm. that they are feeling convicted about, whether Mm -hmm. it's what they're looking at on their phone or the words that they're saying. And you hit on a lot of those Mm -hmm. during your message yesterday Mm -hmm. that you, you talked about there are some people who are on the precipice mm. of a fall. Mm-hmm. But what your story tells people is that my pastor used to say, it's never too late to begin again. Well, that's good. Failure's never final. Yeah. Your fall is not fatal. Yeah. We can use all the different little one-liners <laughs> that we want. But <laughs> your good. story is that in the flesh, that the fact that you got saved the day before you went into lockup, 
Yeah. And you were basically in forced seminary mm-hmm. for three years yeah. to come out and start a world-changing church. But I want to pivot, and I want to talk a little bit about your message that you spoke yesterday. Okay. It was, it was incredible. Thank you. It was unexpected to me. Mm-hmm. And I love when somebody can take a story that you've heard dozens and dozens of times, the story of David and Bathsheba, mm-hmm. and could put a spin on it that makes it so real mm-hmm. to you, that makes you feel like you're in the story. Mm-hmm. And so you, your message yesterday was is about David and Bathsheba, but it, it was about Humpty Dumpty. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I actually took some pretty copious notes on that. And you, you had a couple of very interesting, for your first point was that, I mean, you just took the nursery rhyme <laughs> and, and you just quoted it, a couple of lines of it. And your first point was Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Mm-hmm. And, and you had some interesting things to say about walls. Mm-hmm. And so I think we all have walls in our lives. I think our walls many times are the reason for our fall. Mm-hmm. And so you, you talk, talk about the walls in, in like your first point. I know I'm going to have yeah. you relive your message <laughs> and you just did a video for us. And Yeah, you know, the walls, I think I, I opened by talking about just the different purposes for walls yep. and walls being for protection, right? And oftentimes, uh, and I didn't get into it yesterday, but, you know, when we've been maybe traumatized or hurt, right, we create walls, to protect our heart, mm-hmm. right? And so walls are for privacy. Uh, walls are partitions, divisions, separating places, and right? Spaces. And then walls, uh, what really resonated with me is that they're high places. Mm-hmm. They just represent high places. And so Humpty's set up on a high place, right? And I uh, talked about as kids, you know, we had a wall in our community and we would sit up there because we were small. We couldn't see as much. And so when we got on the wall, just we felt bigger. And, you know, we were able to have a view that we wouldn't normally have and see things from another level. And so I began to think about how the wall that we sit on sometimes could be our worldview. Mm-hmm. That you was know, it. Yeah, how we see life, the lenses that we look through. And uh, if those lenses aren't really, in my estimation, being shaped by scripture, shaped by truth, then we probably put ourselves at risk sitting on that wall to have a fall. Yeah, I loved that you, I mean, you did a visual, which I always love, and you put on a number of different glasses. I loved the fact that you went there on some of the worldviews, some of the worldviews that people are looking at. And a lot of those create... Division. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you yeah. talked about politics. Yeah, politics, ethnicity. Yep. Uh, you know, I was on a podcast not long ago uh, with a pastor in the church, and it was really, a, it was called Kingdom uh, Kingdom Theology, uh, uh, you know, and Kingdom Race Theology is what mm. it was called. And so it was just about, you know, how people view life through those lenses. Yeah. You know, and one of the things I shared with him, I said, here's the thing about, for me, I said, I've learned uh, to view, to do my best to view life through the lenses of scripture. Yes. So I say, I'm not a black man who happens to be saved. Mm. I'm a saved man who happens to be black. But you better stop. Come on. (laughs) So my ethnicity doesn't trump the finished work that Christ has done in my heart. Wow. Right? And so I'm not one of those guys who say, I don't see color. That's not true. Right. 
uh, I was reading a book by a great author, great preacher by the name of Tony Evans. Mm -hmm. And Tony Evans made a statement that's phenomenal. He said, listen, uh, we're not colorblind, but we can be blinded by color. Wow. Isn't that something? And so I think those are some of the lenses, the worldviews that even Christians have. It's so good. And the reason is because, you know, they, we have them, you know, once a week for 35, 40 minutes to try to shape their worldview. And then they go home. And if they're not doing anything on their own, the media, their job, you know, everybody's pushing these worldviews on them. Yeah. It's modern culture. And so we're not careful. We start picking up worldviews that aren't based in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And to me, that can be a slippery wall, slippery slope. Yeah, I grew up a major minority in my neighborhood. And, I mean, I don't remember having a white friend growing up. I do remember a number of my friend's grandmamas, they didn't want me in the house. Yeah. They they went through some stuff that they projected onto me. Yeah. And so I always grew up feeling like I was part of that community. And then when I was incarcerated, I realized that that was totally segregated. Mm. I felt like I would go in to jail and I would just run with the same cats I always ran with. Yeah, wow. And some of the guys that I grew up with were already incarcerated. And I was like, bro, we've been we've been homies since yeah. we were three years old. And now I'm in here and yeah. now I got to be over here and you got to be over here. And the world is doing everything that it can yep. to separate us. Yep. And and so the worldview in there was here we've been imprisoned. And not only have we been imprisoned in our body, we've now been imprisoned in our relationships. Yeah. And so wow. the devil has tried to bring division in every area of our life, whether it be through politics. And yep. I'm not political yep. at all. No, but here's the thing. Um, like... Sometimes, you know, I teach in my church certain things and people will say to me, uh, they may say, you know, Pastor, that sounds political. And the problem is, is, is that the lenses that you're looking through, the people yeah. that you're listening to, for you is political or for them is political. For me, it's biblical. Right. So if I, if I, if I, for example, just for me, I say, you know, I believe that a certain thing is in the scripture. Right. right. Maybe that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman. Right. Okay. That's scriptural. That's biblical. Yeah. But if I start saying that, you say it's political. No, it's not right. political. It's biblical. I don't preach on political things. Right. I preach on biblical things. That's so good. So some things that are biblical, yes, they have made them political. Right. But I'm not preaching political. I'm preaching biblical. Mm -hmm. So if I see it in scripture, I preach it. If I don't, I don't. Right. That's so, so good. Yeah. So I just think that to me... I look at that incident or that scenario through the lenses of Scripture. Right. Right? You know, this, you know it's interesting because uh, I heard a guy say this years ago, and I've always kept it as one of the, my guiding points uh, to help me facilitate through things that, you know, new age, all this stuff that comes on, you know, comes, all this new stuff keeps coming at us. Right. And in the Scripture, um, they went to Jesus and said, hey, what about divorce? And Jesus said, no, don't, no divorce. They said, well, how about Moses? They said, Moses was allowed to and, and write bills of divorce. Right. And Jesus said, here's something Jesus said, and I heard a guy say this, and I never forgot it. He said, in the beginning, it was not so. Mm. He, said, he said, Moses did it for the hardness of men's heart. So I, I, I extracted that out. 
in the beginning, it was not so. So anytime some new stuff comes, I, I say, what was it in the beginning? How did God see it in the beginning? That's great. Because if, if God's the same yesterday, day, forever. So if it wasn't good for God in the beginning, it's not good for God today. Right. <laughs> right? And so that's how I try to funnel my worldview through scripture, through biblical. Some people will make it political. They'll say, I'm being political when I'm not I'm being biblical. I think it's interesting how the enemy has taken things that are biblical and twisted them and made them political because he knew that there would be a natural division between people, whether that be between two parties here or or multiple parties in different countries and anything that causes division. Yep. You'd be hard-pressed to find anything that causes division that's of God. Yeah, that's of God. And I nothing agree. will separate us from that, the love of Christ. Yeah. And so so you said Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Amazing. And then and then the second point was Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Mm. And man, you had a line as a part of that point. Man, I wanted to run around the building. <laughs> I think Pastor Tracy stood up on you oh, is that in right? that moment. And First of all, our people didn't didn't know <laughs> what to do. They've never had somebody be stood up on. <laughs> and I was like, man, you you said uh, the reason that he was on his wall was to. Oh, yeah, to reach or mm. try to grasp, look like what I did when I was a kid or like David did going up on the rooftop to see Bathsheba. Oftentimes it's to reach or to grasp at something that has been put out of your reach, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think I used some of the illustrations of uh, Satan in heaven, right? Yeah. He, he reached for a place in heaven that was really put out of his reach and it caused him to fall. Nimrod builds a tower to reach to heaven. God says, no, it's not. It caused it to fall. Uh Think about Eve. I see her on her tiptoes, reaching for the forbidden fruit, right? God said, you can have everything in the garden, but not this. It's out of your reach. And she reaches for something that you weren't supposed to, and it led to Adam and Eve's fall. And so that's what happened with me. You know, I reached for something that I shouldn't have reached for, fast money, quick money, illegal money, mm -hmm. and it led to my fall. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people reaching for things that they shouldn't have. And you even said... Some of you are doing that with little conversations that you're having with. Mm. What's interesting to me is I, I have spent a lot of time on the road and because of that at hotels and restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I'm a people watcher. And so it's interesting to me to watch business guys mm. who you can see an indentation on their left finger, but you can't see a ring. So that's... Point mm. number one. You are a people watcher. Yeah. <laughs> and then you will see them. When I start to look for that, though, Pastor, is when I start to see a guy trying to spit game. Mm -hmm. And the server comes over, and he's being overly friendly, and then friendly becomes flirty, mm. and then flirty becomes forward, and then... Mm forward become you know becomes something he's he's trying to slide the card across the mm. not just the credit card the room card and and when well, I see when somebody starts to flirt with a server or a front desk agent or somebody and I look at their finger and I see the indentation but I don't see the ring mm. I I think why is that guy reaching for that yeah what is it that's going on that wow. is not allowing him to feel that same level of intoxication at home yeah What's happening in his marriage? What's happening with his kids? What's happening at his job? Yep. And so if you're reaching for something in one area, I would dare to say that you're probably reaching for something in more than one area. Wow. Sin, yeah. sin is... 
insatiable. It lives in multiplicity. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And it is insatiable. Yeah. You can never, never. Yeah. cure yeah. that disease. I just started a new eating plan. And I, I would gain more weight than I'd wanted to. And I had a friend who had lost like 60 pounds. Mm. And he's, so he got me on this program. And you eat these little bars and drink these little shakes. And, you know, it's, it's whatever. Some people <laughs> are going to make fun of me about it. But I'm, I mentioned to him last night. I said, I'm enjoying the results, but I don't enjoy the process. Like, mm. I, don't, I don't like the food, right? Mm. I don't like the particularly these bars that you eat. And the bars, I said, man, the bars just have this like terrible aftertaste. Mm. And he said, oh, well, you got to change your palate. Mm. He wow. said, once, once your body has detoxed itself of its desire for sugar or its dependence upon sugar, then they're going to taste different. He said, a month from now, the bars will taste different. There won't be an aftertaste a month from now because you will have rewired wow. your palate. Mm -hmm. And how many of us, we've never rewired our palate yeah, in our good. relationship with the Lord? Like yeah. what, what if you could have got out of jail and you could have done what lots of other guys do and you could have went back to the block. Yeah. You could have yeah. went, I'm, I don't have a job. I got a felony. I got to meet a PO. And so so what's the natural inclination for those people to yeah. go back to what they were doing? But no, I think that's great because I'm thinking about it in terms of what you just put. It was great rewiring my palate. That's what I did those three years. Yeah. So when I got home, I never forget, uh, one of the guys I ran with, I ran into him on the street somewhere, and he was like, hey, you out. Let's go get one. Let's go get something to drink. Like, mm. And... And here's the interesting thing. Peer pressure is something. Yeah. I can imagine how it is for teenagers. Yeah. Because it me, I was 28, almost 29 years old when this experience happened. And I remember the pressure I felt. But I said, nah. I said, nah, man, I don't do that anymore. And he said, oh, oh, you, you holy roller now. Uh -huh. So I was like, think what you want to think, right? But that broke something in me to let me know I had the courage because my palate had been changed. I knew yes. I don't want to go back. I don't need it. I've been three years without it. Why would I? Right. So I don't, that let me know I don't need it anymore. Yep. And so, uh, no, that was good. And I think the sad reality is, though, what, why do people, why do people go back? Mm -hmm. Because there were guys in there who did bigger, bit longer bids than I did. Yeah. And they get out and then they come back. Well, man, you've been without drugs. You've been without alcohol. You've been with all that for five, six years now. Why, why? So I think that it, you know, uh, did the palate really change? Right. So the time doesn't necessarily change the palate. It's what you do with the time. Yeah. You know, it's what you what what you uh, substitute to fulfill, right? Christ is what you know fulfilled all of those earthly desires that I thought yeah. I needed. Well, the question is, did you did you change? Did you change your palate or did you just change your intake, right? So like when I moved to Green Bay, I was fit. I, I had counted every calorie. I was working out every day and I had, I had cut things out of my life. Like when I stopped playing football, I went to the combine in 1998. I was 307 pounds wow. and, and I had to do lots of different things to not be 307 pounds anymore, but I would always do some kind of gimmick. I did the Atkins diet for a minute where mm. I didn't, you know, I'd eat a pound of bacon and a dozen <laughs> eggs for breakfast and, and miraculously I would lose weight. But the problem was I, I hadn't, I hadn't changed 
what was going on in my mind. I just mm-hmm. changed what was going into my mouth, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. I hadn't hadn't even changed my palate. I had just changed my intake. And mm-hmm. so the minute that I had some carbs, mm-hmm. it was like I was reminded how much I loved carbs, mm-hmm. right? And so on this particular program that I'm on, one of the things that I want to be very conscious of is I didn't just want to do another gimmick. I had felt convicted by the Holy Spirit about my weight. Mm. I had gained a bunch of weight back. Mm. And and in the 10 years that I've lived in Wisconsin, I gained like 70 pounds, mm. which, you know, that's seven pounds a year. It's pretty easy mm. to do. If you took off seven pounds a year, you'd be disappointed, right? Mm. <laughs> and so on this one, I felt like the Lord had called me to get his house in order, his temple. Mm. And so the difference between what I had done before and what I've done now is I'm doing this one as a part of a community of men. Mm. So I have, I have three other guys who are very close to me who are, who are not only doing this program, but they're monitoring me as I do mine. Okay. And so they're, they're, they're being an Aaron and a her to me and they're holding my arms up and and I think that there's a lot of guys who come out and the reason that there is so much repetitive Behavior. incarceration mm-hmm. is because suddenly they get themselves back into the same environment mm-hmm. and they don't have a support system. There isn't a chaplain around. They don't get to have devotional that's every good. day. Yep. And so when we surround ourselves yep. with people, and I think that that's the fascinating part about the story of David. Mm-hmm. When you start this story of David and Bathsheba, the beginning of that story says, in the day when kings mm. was supposed to be at war, mm. Wow. And so all of the people were at war. David's, mm. all David's crew, all of his guys were at war. Yeah, and David good. found himself in the palace alone. Mm. And when he found himself in the palace alone, what, what happens when you're alone? You get bored. Yeah. You get lonely. Yeah. You go to the refrigerator. You go on your phone. Whatever That's it is, so you good. start looking for something. And so yeah. I don't know what, David didn't go up on the roof looking for Bathsheba. He mm-hmm. just went up on the roof looking for something to do. Yeah. And when we don't, have a direction and when we're not in the right environment where he, David wasn't even supposed to be in the palace when that happened. Yeah. He was supposed to be on the battlefield. Yeah. And, and because he was letting other people do what God had called him to do for him, he found himself in a place where the enemy was able to attack him and he was alone. And so now he finds himself in the palace with some strange woman. If if he would have had his guys around him. Yeah. Yep. These guys been like, oh, accountability. Up, Playboy, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's we're not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not doing that. You yeah. got plenty of yeah. yeah. One like David was some that's thirty-two-year-old right. single guy on Match.com. <laughs> he had plenty, <laughs> absolutely, of his own wives, that yeah. he, wives yeah. that he could have. And so when we, when guys come out or people right now, like, and it's not even just about incarceration, but we've got people who are listening to this who they just work a job. Mm. And, and when they, they don't have anybody around them is spiritual. Mm-hmm. They're, they're mm-hmm. the most spiritual person in their yeah. wow. environment. And, and that's a di- I don't want to be the most spiritual person. Yeah. I need people who are older than me who are going to hold me accountable. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know that, that you have that. And you talk, man, you talked about that last night at dinner of, of when guys come out from under the covering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. when it happens. Yeah, that's when it happens. And it's just so important to have it, you know. I think for me, um, 
the support thing is probably the biggest thing. I know it was for me. I know I needed that. And a lot of guys, when they do come out, they just kind of have to go back in those same environments. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, like you said, it's the reminder of the carbs. Man, I remember how good it was, right? And so when you get back in those environments, it's, you know, your flesh now is being, you know, tempted because you, you right, you're just right there. And so for me, I didn't have to deal with that, and I'm grateful for that, right? Yeah. And so... Uh, I, when I came home, uh, I was basically uh, in a halfway house, and uh, I got out of there early because I told the story of, you know, how the judge kind of released me early and did some things in my life there to help. But uh, I did move into the apartment with Tracy, and we weren't married. And so, you know, I was convicted about that, just living there. And that's why wow. we got married so soon. Yeah, We already knew we were going to get married. We just didn't know. So we just, you know, I don't know, it was a few weeks before Christmas, we said, hey, how about we just do it on Christmas Day? We didn't have a big wedding. Till today, we haven't had a big wedding. Wow. You know, I went out and bought her a ring at that time. It didn't wasn't worth much. And uh, Christmas Day, our families just, her immediate family, my immediate family, went to the church, got married, went back home, and opened up gifts. Mm. And so, you know, we're coming up, uh, you know, in 30 years, maybe this year we'll do something. I don't know. Yeah. For me, I, I've always been, let's just have a great marriage. Let's not have one day of great celebration in 30 yeah. years of hell, right? <laughs> Let's have 30 years of great celebration, even though maybe the wedding wasn't what yeah. we wanted it to be. So it was the support. And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, we just got to find a way to get people support, you know, yeah. uh, if we're going to cut down on recidivism rates and allow people. But, the, but you got to be hungry, though. Yeah. You know, you got to be hungry to do something different. Yeah, I think if people are on the precipice of a fall, they have to recognize that they are, right? Because your final point was Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And you said when he fell, the shell was cracked. Yeah. And you can't, you can't, you can't uncrack a shell yeah. in a normal egg. And you talked yeah. about you could try the scotch tape and the duct tape, the gorilla tape, the yeah. super glue, the gorilla <laughs> glue. You could yeah. try the nails. That was the one that got me. Yeah. Because you said... Sometimes you cause more damage trying to fix the damage. Yeah, yeah, and we do. You know how many people just you know pick up the phones instead of falling on their knees. You know mm -hmm. how many people try to make it happen because we're just used to being in control, right? And so not realizing we don't even have the tools to fix it. We don't even have the resources to fix it. It's so shattered. It's so broken. You know you don't even know where to start at. And sometimes we make more of a mess trying to clean up our mess instead of just, you know, trusting God, submitting it in the hands of God, right? Mm -hmm. And following good, wise counsel. And, and then you can start, you know, seeing things come together, right? It's just, I, I think that it's important to have, you know, in the Valley of Dry Bones, remember you asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? They're all broken. It's, it's a representation of brokenness. Just It was something that once lived. The bones says it once lived. So the fact that there were bones, it was, was life. Yeah. But then he says, can they live again? And then, then interesting enough, the prophet says, God, you know. Right? So it's like only, only God knows. Only God can do this, right? And so he says, prophesy, speak to the bones. So I think as, as it relates to a believer, as Christians, we need that prophet. We need that pastor. We need that overseer. Mm -hmm. We need somebody who can breathe into us, speak into us, yes. to help us come back together again. Yeah. You know? I yeah. think when you look at any of the, I mean, we've talked, we haven't talked about pastors by name on here who have fallen. Just, it's none of mine. Mm -hmm. It's not my place. But we see him in the news. Yeah. You would be, I don't think you'll find any pastor 
who has fallen, who had covering. Mm. Now, he may have had an image of covering. Yeah, that's good. He may have been a part of an organization. Yeah. He may have had a board, but yeah. he, he wasn't submitting himself to that process. Yeah, let me say this. That's good because it's making me think of a particular pastor that I know if I would say his name, everybody would know. But he's supposed to have had a covering. He had a fall and the covering told him, listen, here's what you need to do. You need to step away, sit down. Mm-hmm. He left his covering and went and joined another organization. And so it was like, did you really have a covering? Yeah. Did you really trust, you know, you, you only had a covering in namesake, yep. you know, because they had a good name. And so it builds your brand yep. and you look great. But when the covering was being integrous, right, and say, hey, right now, and here's what, the, here's what the covering said. I remember reading the argue. They said, you're going to lose something. Mm. You're going to take a hit from this. Just realize that's the, re- that's the result of the fall. But you can be restored. And instead of taking the steps that the covering had rec- uh, recommended, he just left the covering and went and joined another organization. And the organization welcomed him with open arms. And so that's, you know, I tell our church sometimes being funny, I said, you know, the thing about, you know, the difference in the church today back then, you have a lot of church hopping today because you have a lot of options. Right. You know, back in the Bible, it was one church at Ephesus. So <laughs> if they put you out of Ephesus, you had to get right to get back to church. Right. So now you can go right down the street, you go to the next guy, open up his arms and take you in. And so it just, it, it keeps people from being accountable to change and to, you know, say, I'm going to be God work. Yeah, we, we have a friend who, he was on staff with me at a church and, and became the pastor of that church. And, and he had a fall and refused to take responsibility for it. And the thing that was challenging for me that I saw in that, that I think happens a lot of times in a fall that we don't talk about, is it, if, it affected me even though I wasn't a part of what he did, I wasn't a victim of what he did and I wasn't the perpetrator of what he did. But because I loved him and I believed in him, I actually almost wouldn't acknowledge the fact, even though I knew people very closely who mm. he had victimized. Wow. And, and I, it was like, I wanted to believe him because I didn't want to believe that he could do something like that. Wow. And, and he was offered the opportunity to be restored. And rather than do that, he went a couple miles away and started another church and took 600 people with him. Wow. And in the process of that, what he did is he impacted the spiritual climate of his community. Wow. He didn't just hurt the, the 600 that he took or the few thousand that he left behind or his victims. Now there has become this ripple effect wow. that that church that he left, it isn't having the effectiveness that God has called it to have. Mm. And then the people in the community who knew that he was a spiritual leader, who maybe were spiritual seekers, they aren't, they aren't going to churches now seeking out because they go, see, mm-hmm. just another just mm-hmm. another thing of another guy mm-hmm. who's fleecing the flock yep. and all of the different. Yep. And so what I appreciate so much about you is, is the level of humility that you clearly operate your life with, the level of accountability that you operate your life with. And uh, I love the fact that you have given us like a real-time example of someone who has been, I mean, at the bottom, Jack. You can't, I mean, other than be dead, 
Yeah. You can't be much lower yeah. than be caught up and do a bit in a federal penitentiary, walk out a felon, and yet you flip the script on the devil. Yeah. And you created a city changing, family changing, life changing, world changing church yeah. in a difficult community. Yeah. Columbus ain't no joke. And the thing is, I grew up in that city. Yep. So there are a lot of people who know me. My members are running to people now and they'll say, oh, Lon, Lon, he should. <laughs> So they'll be like, Lon, they don't call me that. But, you know, people, you know, <laughs> I did a message on Easter where they came to the tomb with Jesus, right? And they say, you know, why look for the living among the dead? And one of my points was people will always look for you in the last place they saw you, right? Oh. And so, you know, that's the last place they saw me. So I have to tell my members, that's the last place they saw me. So that's that's who they remember. That's where they look for me at. I'm not there anymore, but that's where they look for me at, right? And so I tell my church all the time, I was in prison Guests come in. I tell them sometimes. I don't share it all the time. I see what yeah. the Holy Spirit leads me to. Yeah. I was locked up. I was in prison. I used to smoke weed. I used to drink. I, I put, you know, coming out of the shadows. Yeah. Right? So I put it out there. So if you hear from anybody else, it don't matter. I know that. My pastor already told me that. Yeah. Right? So we're not hiding anything. We're not. Yeah. So this is who I am. You know, like it, love it, take it, leave it, you know. But I know who I am. And yeah. I'm comfortable with who I am. And I know I'm not, uh, I think Paul said something about not being, uh, I can't remember verbatim embarrassed or something. I know the power. I'm not ashamed of yep. the gospel. Right. Right? That's the gospel. I'm not ashamed of that. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. That's The gospel is turning dead things to, to live again. Yep. You know, so. Well, the beauty is you you used to do those things. You used to be that guy. You used to be incarcerated, mm -hmm. but you are no longer incarcerated. You used to be imprisoned, but you are no longer imprisoned. And if you're listening to this podcast and you feel like you're locked up in something, you're locked up in a habit, you're locked up in a relationship, you're locked up in a lifestyle that you feel like you can't get out of. I want you to listen to Pastor Lonnie's story. You can listen to his message from yesterday at lifechurchgreenbay.com. And I'm going to tell you that he is living proof that there is a rise after the fall. Hi friends, it's Sunny again. And I just want to say, Sean and I appreciate your faithful listening. And we hear all the time that many of you are sharing this. In fact, we've had a few people say, I tell everybody I know, specifically other pastors and leaders about this podcast. And so we may have shared in our early season two episode about the story of getting a retreat center that we're now going to call the reserve, uh, 20 acres, multiple houses, and the ability to house pastors and leaders, their families. We're going to basically say we're hosting the hurting, we're hosting the betrayed, we're restoring the betrayer. Uh, and so now we have a campus to do that on a, a 20 acre property to do that on, as well as we'll continue to bring people into Green Bay and we provide um, help in the finances for that and the housing for that at times as needed. Also, we'll continue to go to people. We've done that over the last couple of years, flown directly to couples in crisis. That's been an ongoing thing that Sean and I, Pastor Becky, Pastor Barry have done. But what I wanted to ask you is that um, because this retreat center is $1.8 million, which actually for 20 acres, a massive house, other housing 
uh, it's really reasonable. We just happened to find it in a great location. And the person who's selling it to us has a ministry heart. He's on the board of the church that we interned at coming right out of Bible college. It's just crazy, the God story. But we need to get $600,000 as the down payment. Now he's going to spread that over the first year. So it's 54,000 a month. Whew. Then after that, the 1.2 million that we will finance with him, those payments will start and that's in the 70 some hundred dollars. So $7,000 a month plus utilities and expenses, but that's much more palpable than 54,000 a month. But for this first year, we're grateful that we didn't have to come up with 600,000 to even begin work on the property. We already own it. We're already doing construction. But what I would ask you is if you would consider, and you may say, it's me. I have, you know, $100,000 put away for our church that we are going to start construction on something. Or you may say, I have $1.8 at the church I lead and we were breaking ground. But I feel, <laughs> this is the crazy thing. I've heard some crazy stories about pastors who after having the money or praying for the money and they get it for something God's having them do, God told them to give it away. But then God exceeded their expectation and they came back and had eightfold, ninefold. I know of a church in Texas, this just happened. Uh, they gave a million dollars they had raised to break ground on a new property. And the, someone had, had been at this conference with them and they had a roof that had caved in and it was a million dollars to repair it. And God told him, give the million dollars. Well, he did. And within a few weeks, they had a company come to them and offer them money for the land and to give them land they owned. And they basically were given about $8 million from their million dollars they gave away. So I just know that when Sean and I even have given $1,200, which was our first big gift when we were first married at a conference and God told us, give everything. And we had $1,201 in our bank account, which was a ton for us. It was like our savings. We gave it, we got home and we got, had a check in our mailbox for $1,250. Now we made $49 on that, but it increased our faith. We made a lot of return on our faith and that investment and knowing God will never ask us to give that he doesn't have a huge plan. So I take this time to say, you might be the one that says, we're gonna give you 1.8. You'll never have to worry about money as you do this ministry. You might say, we're gonna give you 600,000 for the down payment so that you don't have to stress for the first year at 54,000 a pop as you build it out. Or you might say, we're gonna give monthly or we have something else in mind. Thank you for considering it. Thank you for stepping out in faith and thank you for being a faithful listener to this. We appreciate you.